1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan.
0: So Cass, um, as you know, it is quite the rarity when we have contemporary fashion designers on the show. And that is because we consider ourselves to be a history podcast. But that being said, from time to time, there are definitely exceptions to be made in the case of living legends.
1: Yes, and of course, such is the case today. We are so excited to welcome Norma Kamali to the show. Norma has been a defining force of American fashion for more than five decades. That's right, five decades. From the late 1960s to this very day, Norma has been gifting us all with super smart, comfortable designs that effortlessly take us from day to night. And I am not joking here
0: when I say that living in New York City, sometimes when I leave the house very first thing in the morning, you know, like 8 a.m., I might already know that my day is going to end up at a fancy dinner party or an event or like a museum opening or something where I need to be dressed up of course, we're talking about in the before times when events actually happened. But, um, you know, doing so, leaving the house at 8 a.m. and then needing to be dressed in the p.m. is a little bit tricky. As you can imagine, I I rarely have time to come home and change for these sorts of things. So it's that what to wear in the a.m. and p.m. question. And without fail, I always find myself turning to some of my Norma Kamali pieces in my closet because with just a little switch of jewelry or change of makeup and hair. I was kind of good to go out the door for the entire day. And and I'm such a fan. Some of her pieces in my closet are from more than 15 years ago, and I still
1: wear them on a regular basis. And today, Norma joins us on the occasion of her recently released book, I Am Invincible, which is an incredible guide to life, love, and style. And this week will be a two-part episode covering her fashion career. But April, the two of you discuss so much more. Yes, we did.
0: We actually talked for quite a long time, for two hours. Um, and while the episodes this week, as you mentioned, Cass, will detail her fashion career, we also talked at length about health and lifestyle. And she's a big proponent of both of these things. And I have to say, she's got that formula down. You know, I recently uh, told our friend, Risa Britannia, that I was going to interview her soon. And she kind of gasps and she just said, she's an angel's goddess. And... <laughs> I think we can all concur. So we're actually going to save that part of our discussion about health and lifestyle and her tips on aging with power for a different day. But if you can't wait to
1: read some of her tips, check out her book, which goes in depth into all of these things. So without further ado, we give you Norma. Thank you for being here, Norma. Norma, one of the sections in your book is actually your thoughts
0: on each decade of your life, starting with your 20s. And I'd like to delve in here as this is when your career in fashion began. But before we get to that, would you tell us a little bit about your childhood and your education?
2: I had a really great childhood. I have to say, I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. It was Low, mid, lower class, low income immigrants to this country in the 50s. I have to say, each family had five to 10 kids, and we all did everything together. We went to school together, we went to camp together, we had an after school community center that we went to together. The Broadway community came and helped us produce plays with songs and dancing and scripts that were like Broadway quality. We had extraordinary experiences together as as a community. We were a very tight community. I treasure it. And I actually received a note from an email from my very first boyfriend as a result (laughs) of this book. His opening line was, all of us should get together every 10 years to celebrate the wonderful childhood we experienced and how we all benefited from it. I literally cried because... It was such a great childhood. My mother was eccentric and different from everybody else's mother. And obviously, we are not Irish Catholics, so we did look different too. Her habits were really very in the moment. She was juicing. She had a huge juicer that looked like a car engine that she would start at like six o'clock in the morning. And The apartment was only like a postage stamp, so it was like I was next to it. (laughs) And she would juice, she took supplements, she really thought about what we were eating, what we were doing, exercising, and it was embarrassing to have a mother like that. When everybody else's mother was sort of normal, I would beg her when my friends would come over, mom, could you not (laughs) not go there? And she said, no, it's too bad. Too bad for you. This is my house. I thought about her through the years and not only did she sew beautiful clothes and do all the costumes for those plays and she painted oil paints, she could cook anything that she tasted at any restaurant. She was incredibly talented and was very independent and was a single mom and really showed me that women can do anything eventually as i got older and smarter realized what an incredible image for me to think that that was what everybody's mother does that everybody's mother can do all these things as I write in the beginning of my book, as I dedicated to her, I have become her. And there are people that think I'm eccentric too and say things about me. And I, I understand, but I was very fortunate. And I think we all are. We all have parents or influences growing up. And they could be rough ones too, because my childhood was great, but there weren't always good things happening. My mother and father divorced. And so there's that trauma for kids. And But all of that, mind you, is what we are meant to have as lessons so that we're able to be the people we're meant to be in this lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I really think we all, I think you are, I am, everybody has a mother, a family, a father that is setting up how we're going to figure out how to manage our lives. You attended school, public school in New York City. Is that correct? I did. I did. I went to PS 158, which is a very good elementary school, public school for kids. I went to Wagner Junior High School, which is a little rougher around the edges. And then I went to... Washington Irving High School, which was all girls at the time, the population there were six percent Asian and white, and the the population was very mixed from all parts of New York. It was sort of near Little Italy and Chinatown, but it was a commercial area. I got into the school because I wanted to get scholarships because I knew my mother wouldn't be able to afford college. So I would travel outside of my neighborhood for the first time and go to Washington Irving. Washington Irving was a very tough school, very tough. You had to be strong and tough. I was very athletic growing up. I mean, I would climb fences to go swimming and I was tough. I was a New York City girl. So I felt I was okay. But if you carried a portfolio, it meant you were a target. So I had to hold my own. And I love the school because it gave me... The opportunity to have scholarships, not only for painting, but to FIT and life drawing classes. I got so much from that school that I eventually went back in the late 80s and 90s and and up until it eventually closed to work with the students in the art department. And I felt very committed to helping them because if you go to a public school in New York City, it's not a level playing field. Privilege does not exist in any way. And I feel very sensitive about what's going on with school. So we're not even going to go here. So I felt a need to give back, obviously, to a school that did so much for me. I love that.
0: And I think you mentioned in your book that um, it's in your old homeroom. Is that correct?
2: Yes. (laughs) That's so charming. When I went back to the school, they actually invited me because the school became co-ed and the kids were tearing apart the neighborhood because it was a commercial neighborhood. Nobody knew neighbors or friends and the businesses were really having a hard time. So the principal of the school and some of the community leaders called on graduates to go back to see how we could help. So when I went back to the school, I think they wanted me to fundraise or something. I said, I'm so not good at that, but I would love to go back into the art department and see if I can help. And they said, no, you're probably not going to want to do that. And I said, I'm I'm fine. I graduated from this school. There's no surprises here. I, I can go into the classroom. So I went into the classroom and the kids wouldn't look at me. They were all talking and really wanted no part of me. One girl, not even looking at me, she was putting on makeup, raised her hand and she said, so what's in it for you to be here? They didn't trust anybody and why should they? I told them that I sat in those very same, in fact, the desks were exactly the same. <laughs> they hadn't changed them. The room was exactly the same. And I said, I sat in this room. This is my homeroom. And I want to give back. I got a scholarship. I, I've i had great opportunity because of this school. And I want to see how I can help you guys have that. And I know your mother is probably saying, you're not going to make any money drawing. My mother said that. You probably everybody's worried about you because what's going to happen with this kind of education. And I said, and everybody was worried about me too. So I'm going to teach you how to make money by drawing and by doing this. And then I set up a fashion studio in that room. It was a very big, big room. And I had cutting tables, sewing machines, and I would have my fabric meetings there. we we'll do all kinds of things. And we created a company. We sold t-shirts with the drawings that the kids did oh, on them. That's so great. And we had a really good business. It was great. Yeah. It was wonderful. So, of course, you know, you mentioned FIT
0: and you ended up with a scholarship. And I did not know this. I have always known that you were an alum of FIT also, but you didn't study fashion design. You actually studied fashion illustration.
2: I did. Yeah. So you have to keep in mind, April, that I was there in the early 60s, and this is Mad Men time. Mm-hmm. And I hated Hate is even not even a strong enough word, and I don't like to use that word, but everything was matchy. It was girdles and garter belts and stockings, cone bras, matching gloves and hats and shoes and dresses. And this is the way the girls came to FIT. Mm -hmm. That's how they went to school. Nobody was wearing vintage clothes then, I promise you. But I was so addicted to old movies. My mother used to watch them all the time, all the movies from the 30s and 40s. And so I loved them. And I wanted to dress like the women in those movies. And I found some places and they they weren't called vintage stores. They were like junk stores. Mm -hmm. And I would wear those clothes and everybody was, doing Mad Men. So I didn't want to be in fashion. I really didn't like it, but I liked drawing and I liked illustration. And I would look at all the magazines from the 30s and 40s because they were great illustrators at the time. I had an amazing instructor, her name was Anna Ishikawa and she was Japanese and she was injured during the war. She had a wooden leg, literally, and she would thump through the classroom and scare the shit out of everybody. (laughs) You were afraid to breathe when she was passing by you. And she would just tell you, like, you know what? I don't think drawing's for you. She would tell people, save your money. Don't do this. She was for real and tough. And she also taught Antonio Lopez. So she actually brought him in the classroom one day because he was in the class before me, before he left to meet me. And then we eventually became very good friends. But Ana Ishikawa was probably one of the biggest influences in my love of art and drawing Her toughness prepared me for the reality of if you're not good enough, you better get better or find something else. I, I really appreciated that education mainly because of her.
0: After you left, you had a rather upsetting job interview To become a fashion illustrator where a man essentially, or not even essentially, he sexually harassed you during this interview.
2: So, again, this is the 60s, right? This is madman time. This is totally the behavior du jour. When you're 18, 19, 20, you know how vulnerable you are. All girls are vulnerable and we don't feel the power. It's other people that have the power. They have more experience. They know more. They're, they're in the situation of giving us a job or whatever it is. And so a lot of times we find ourselves in objectifying situations, whether we created ourselves or we were stupid to believe that this is all going to be good when we should actually know better. But that's what use and vulnerability is about. In any case, I really prepared for this job interview. My mother was very anxious for me to start making some money so she could afford to take care of all of us. And I really wanted to help her because she was very supportive about my art. And Anna Ishikawa gave me blessings on my portfolio. And I was really, I thought about everything I was going to wear. I had a little bun, little black dress, pumps, simple. And I remember going into the garment industry uh, center and into one of the big buildings and this guy was eating a tuna sandwich with his feet up on his desk. Straight out of a movie. <laughs> it's like, I could still smell the tuna sandwich Ugh. if you want to really know. And I forgot about this for a long time. I pushed it so far back. In any case, he said, young lady, you're still eating, leaning back on his chair. Put your portfolio down over here, over there and come here. So I do. And he says, I want you to turn around for me now. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What do I do? Like, what do I do? And I turned around. And I was so humiliated. I was so embarrassed that I did that. And this job interview meant so much to me. And I just started crying and I left. I picked up my portfolio. I remember my stockings tearing. My like, just I was just a mess. And I came back and I had to tell my mother I didn't get the job. And I never told her why. I never told anybody about it. And then I said, I hate this fashion thing. I don't want any part of it. Um, I want to travel. I want to see the world. I cannot work in the garment center. And I looked in the New York times, which is where you could find classified job listings. And at the time the airlines were really sort of like Apple or like a tech position, Google, Mm -hmm. one of those where you're in this edgy, high tech kind of environment and traveling by air was just becoming the thing. And I worked at an airline in the office on a Univac computer, which really created such a great comfort zone for me with technology. And I just couldn't believe how much information we were getting from this machine. And I Started to travel to London, $29 round trip, did that for four years. And I watched the 60s revolution happen every weekend as if I lived there because people thought I did. And it was just just so, I was so fortunate because... I was everything about what was happening there. It was me. It was my identity. People were wearing vintage clothes and they were, you know, it was so perfect. And as a baby boomer, I was the first start of baby boomers and I didn't connect to the previous generation, which was the post-war and so baby boomers were really the initiators, the disruptors for what was happening in the 60s. And I I was where I should have been. And I started bringing clothes back. Mini skirts on the street had never been worn, as you know, as a historian, on the street in public. And I witnessed this for the first time that, oh my God. And and at my age, I didn't appreciate that it never happened before. I just knew that I wasn't, and my friends weren't, and people weren't. And I came back, I hemmed up my skirt immediately to mid-thigh, and I bought dresses that were mid-thigh. And you would not believe the response to dressing like that at that time in New York City. It was just nobody. Motown was very big. The style was very different. And so this look and the sound of the music and all of that was just about to come. And I was right, just like right ahead of it, just coming over. And then my friends please bring us stuff. So I would carry a big garment bag filled with clothes. And then I finally opened up a little shop in the basement of a group of buildings that were all kind of young artists, designers doing interesting things. And in the basement for $285 a month, my rent I would sell these little dresses and that's how it all started.
0: Yeah, and you had a pretty big success early on with this boutique because you had some definitely amazing clients and I'm sure our listeners will recognize a few of their names. Who was shopping with you at that time?
2: Well, I need to set the stage a little bit because shopping in the 60s and 70s was an adventure. People got dressed to go shopping. And going shopping was like going to galleries where you, you look forward to seeing what that artist is doing or what's happening. So this was a thing people did. And shopping with as a couple or a group of friends, it was a thing you did. The other thing was All performers, whether they were musicians, singers, actresses, everyone shopped themselves. They would shop for what they were going to wear. They would never have a stylist, ever. That would be like telling Jimi Hendrix he needed a stylist. Not happening. So the point was, you didn't want to look like anybody else. You didn't want to look like a brand for sure. You wanted to look like an expression of yourself and who better knows that than the person who's wearing the clothes. So everybody was shopping in all of these new kind of shops that had different things than the stores had because a lot of the stores were still in old 60s mode. They weren't mm-hmm. moving in this new image. So a, a lot of musicians and singers and actors and actresses were were clients, and they would come in and just shop and not feel insecure about wearing something that nobody had ever seen before by a designer that nobody had ever seen. In fact, that was even more exciting for them. So I had the opportunity to work with just everybody, literally. I know it sounds crazy, but I did things for guys like Sly and the Family Stone. I did tons of feather jackets for him. I did stuff for Raquel Welsh, Cher, uh, Diana Ross, you just name it. And everybody that was in that age group in that time, I had a lot of uh, fun times doing things. And Robert Plant bought my shirts. I did some fun crazy, one-of-a-kind things. And it was a great time to do that kind of experimenting and playfulness with clothes. Clothes were like art for the body. Mm -hmm. I remember after the mini, like mini skirts were obviously very popular and pants with a certain kind of fit and lots of shiny textured fabrics, And I started doing hot pants and basically hot pants were tiny shorts, short shorts, not with your butt hanging out, but short that you could wear on the street with boots to your knee, right? So that would, with little jackets or shirts. And I don't know who else was doing hot pants, but I know I was, and I would make each pair of hopkins I would do applique designs and I would cut out pieces of velvet and different materials and do palm trees or a scene or a theme so each short was like a piece of art but with fabric and I remember sewing them into the wee hours and because we would just make, I would make them out of snakeskin, velvet, felt, suede, leather, every fabric you could think of. And I would do zigzag stitches around each of the appliques. And I'd do all of those and then sew them together and hang them in the store. And then they'd be gone. And I'd have to do more of them. But they were fun to do because... For each one, I could come up with another layout, another color story. So it was very artful, very creative. In general, that's what people really love to wear.
0: More than a couple of iconic designs that you are still known for today happened really early on in this part of your career. Would you tell us a little bit about the parachute collection and also the sleeping bag coat? And I just want you to know that I am obsessed with my sleeping bag coat. Oh, good. I'm not sure
2: how I lived life before I had it. (laughs) Total game changer. (laughs) Well, the way to make it last forever, which you can do, is... When you're ready to roll it up into a pillowcase or into a sack for the for the summer, take a sponge with soapy water and do every bit around the collar, the cuffs, everywhere. Really spongy clean because bacteria eats mm. up fabric. Right. And if you, especially if you have lipstick on and you, that it, that's. I would clean it along the way as you wear it too. And then if you do that and you roll it off, it will last forever. That's my little tip. So I would say that the early seventies in the fashion world were a, probably the most innovative, creative time. And Ian Schrager and I both really, um, Agree that this is actually um, still true. The fashion industry was coming into its own. There weren't brands per se, there were the big sort of couture names, but not that many American ones. But brands were beginning, and there was incredible innovation and creativity. It was in the air, it was the time that was ready for it. And I loved that period because whatever you made then people were very receptive to because they didn't feel they had to dress in a certain way to be accepted. They they felt just dressed the way you want and then you're accepted. So during that period of time, I just experimented in areas that were brand new for me. And I did a lot of things as first, and obviously the sleeping bag coat, around, I would say, between 73 and 76, not just for me, but in the, in the industry. And if you do research on that, there was a lot of very, very innovative concepts about fashion that still remain today, right? Mm-hmm. They're still relevant today. So the sleeping bag coat is is interesting because I didn't think of it as a design. I really looked at it as a commodity when I was camping and Got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and it was freezing cold. So I was in a tent with my friends, but I just grabbed my sleeping bag and wrapped it around me. And then I thought, this needs sleeves. And I came back and I cut up my sleeping bag, put sleeves on it. Didn't waste any of it. It was a real sustainable project. I had the collar, the sleeves, everything. There was no waste at all. And the the coat had a yellow flannel interior with geese on it, and (laughs) the outside was khaki. And then I just started buying sleeping bags and making coats, and they were really popular. And like I said, the original intention was that it was more of a commodity, because the whole shape of it was so big. It wasn't in keeping with The 70s, as you know, that's not 70s silhouette Mm -hmm. at all. And so to this day, I am still making sleeping bag coats. I've not ever not made sleeping bag coats. Every year in the 53 years I've been doing this, we made sleeping bag coats from 1973. And then the other thing that I did around that time was I was wearing, like like I said, I wore vintage. I was Miss 1939. That was my favorite year. I can tell you every accessory that you could possibly, (laughs) I, I know everything and I wore it all and I loved it. And I thought, I feel so comfortable in vintage. Why don't I come up with Vintage of the future. What will be the vintage of the future? So at the time, this jersey type fabric was very innovative, very new, and not quite the best drapey hand, but it was a jersey that could be used for lots of different things from a creative perspective it was you know you could wash it it was it it had all of this kind of possibility so i made a group of dresses and i thought of each of the dresses as vintage of the future and i will tell you three of those dresses are still on my collection i promise you they are and one of them is called the all-in-one and you can wear it as many ways as you can imagine. And it's still one of our best sellers. And some of the other ones come in and out. I use them sometimes and then sometimes I rest them. But so they really fulfill vintage of the future. And they're actually better now because this jersey is so much better. The quality, mm-hmm. the evolution of the technology clearly. And so I've seen some of the vintage pieces I've made out of that fabric and it's like plastic. I mean, <laughs> it's just the, the aging process of it, not so good. The fabric just didn't didn't have the life that you would expect out of that. And then I started doing swimwear then and lots of thing, new things in, in my career The parachute is an interesting story because we eventually moved to Madison Avenue to a second floor store. And I knew it was time to move because there are times where as a designer, you have to reinvent yourself. And so I was doing all of this one of a kind feathers, velvet, all of that. And I thought I need to learn how to be another kind of designer. I want to learn how to make a hand-stitched suit the way men have hand-stitched suits. I want to make lace dresses that are bias cut. I want, I want to evolve as a designer into this. By moving to Madison, it was literally like starting all over again.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I didn't have the same customers anymore. And so... People either wanted to follow me and they did, or I had new customers. I was literally a half a block away from Halston's place on Madison and Victor Hugo, who was Halston's uh, assistant, lover, designer, all of that, was a really fascinating guy, and we were very friendly. He would come and sit in my shop and for hours and talk and spend time with friends and other people. It was very social. The stores were very social, and so um, and I was doing a lot of very innovative swimwear at that time too. So lo and behold, the swimsuit that I did was a very big kind of fascination for Victor and he really loved it. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. And I'm glad he does until somebody showed me a few weeks later, the cover of time magazine and my swimsuit was on the cover, except Holston's name was on it. And (sighs) I was so devastated. I, you know, I was used to being copied because it was just what people do. But I was also very vulnerable because I was lucky to pay the rent each month. It was really hand to mouth. But this was more of like my friend betrayed me. That That's a different kind of thing than being knocked mm-hmm. off. And I really felt so bad. So he kept trying to reach me and he finally got me. And so he said, I apologize for what I did. It was wrong. And I feel really bad, but I have something for you. And you have to meet me at Halston's house. He'll be away for the weekend. So meet me and I want to give it to you there. And I said, I do not want to go to Halston's house. I do not want to see you. And he said, please please, you must do this. I'm begging you. I know I this is my way of making it up to you. So I went to Halston's house, which was really a very beautiful house. And I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, but it's a townhouse that was just open straight up with balconies and an ottoman on the first floor. It's in all the pictures. And there's over the ottoman is a balcony. So Victor said, sit on the ottoman and cover your eyes. So I said, okay. And he stood on the balcony above and dropped a parachute on my head. And I said to him, what, what's this for? Like, what are you doing? And he said, I know you're going to make a lot of great things out of this. And the minute he said it, I started to visualize what that could be and he said and it would be great if you made something for me too and i so i i still pretended to be annoyed but i wasn't that annoyed anymore when i saw the parachute and then i started to make tons of things and i bought a whole bunch of silk parachutes uh from you know army navy sort of uh not allowed to be used as a parachute again places. And then I thought about it and I said, yeah, he's forgiven. This is a good one. (laughs) This This is a really good one. And I'm still, we still sell parachute. We still do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how we can top that story.
1: Norma, thank you for joining us and sharing your journey with our listeners. I, for one, cannot wait until part two, which will come later this week coming Thursday to be specific and it will not disappoint
0: nor does her book I Am Invincible which covers so much more than we had time for today or even this week so check it out if you would like to hear more from Norma and I think that for today that does address listeners may you consider the legacy of American design in your closet next time you get dressed As Cass said, please do join us Thursday for part two and also check out our Instagram for images accompanying each week's episode at dress
1: underscore podcast. And of course you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com and thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday.